Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hover. They sell domain names, which just sounds like a thing that you have to get done. But in fact, it's actually a really nice thing. It means you're starting a new project. It means that you're actually doing that thing that you intended to do. When you do that, Hover is the place where you should do it. They don't upsell you. They are the best in class. Go to hover.com slash Canada Land and you will get 10% off when you use the offer code Canada Land. I'm not really into punching Nazis. This isn't me taking like an anti-Nazi punching position here necessarily. Maybe there comes a point where you do need to punch a Nazi. This is more of like a stylistic thing. My style is more in line with that guy who followed a bunch of marching neo-Nazis while playing Ride of the Valkyries on his tuba. I am definitely into mocking Nazis. That would be my first choice. Next up would be outnumbering Nazis. Those peaceful counter-protests where there were like a hundred or more anti-racists for every one proud boy, son of Odin, guardian of the North, uh, sentinel of paleness, what have you. Exposing Nazis, that's good too. I have little issue with that. Post their photos on the internet, name and shame them. That is okay by me. But punching Nazis, I don't know. The biggest problem with punching Nazis, I think, is that they can win. Then it's about who punches better or how many Nazis there are punching back. I mean, you'll win a fight with Nazis on every other basis. Morality, reason, history, science, none of those are very kind to Nazis. But punching, the biggest reason, I think, not to punch Nazis is that it makes it too easy for critics to dismiss you. That is what the National Post, for example, and its many columnists have been doing. As soon as you have Antifa guys throwing punches, the whole anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, anti-racist thing can be dismissed. Then it just looks like two groups of hooligans bashing at each other on the streets. Both sides look equally dangerous and antisocial and criminal and, and both get decried in the same breath. 
if these anti-fascists were legitimate, the argument goes, then they would fight the Nazis within the law. But here's an interesting thing about that. There is a guy who punched Nazis within the law. In fact, he punched them with the law again and again. He went after Canada's neo-Nazi groups relentlessly over a decade ago. And he did so using our hate speech laws, specifically by using what was then Section 13, the hate speech section of the Canadian Human Rights Act. And what's interesting to me is that some of the same people who are now decrying Antifa for fighting Nazis by breaking the law, they're the same people who once decried this guy for fighting Nazis with the law. This guy's name is Richard Warman. He is a lawyer. He describes himself as a human rights lawyer. And in the early aughts, he took it upon himself to file hate speech complaint after hate speech complaint against neo-Nazis, Holocaust deniers, all kinds of racists. And, and he won these cases again and again. At first, he was celebrated. He got a human rights award from the Canadian Jewish Congress. But his tactics made him an increasingly controversial figure. He called his strategy maximum disruption. He filed more Section 13 hate speech complaints than any other Canadian citizen. In fact, there was a time when most of the Section 13 complaints filed were filed by Richard Warman. Most people did not know that Section 13 even existed, much less know how to use it and how to use it effectively. Richard Warman knew exactly how to use it. In fact, during the time that he was lodging these complaints, and this is part of why he was so controversial, he worked for the Canadian Human Rights Commission. He was a lawyer with them. He was an investigator for them. His critics said that he abused the system, that he took cash prizes from the commission for winning his cases, that he infiltrated racist websites posing as a Nazi himself and participating they claimed, in their racist conversations. He denies that. He sued people who said that, including John Kay and Ezra Levant. Levant had to apologize to Richard Warman. And all of these hate speech complaints and libel lawsuits, it all piled up to the point where Richard Warman became like this boogeyman to the National Post, public enemy number one of free speech in Canada. Despising Richard Warman was something that neo-Nazis and Jewish conservatives, some of them, could agree on. And both of them celebrated when Section 13 was ultimately struck down following a ruling on a Richard Warman hate speech complaint wherein the commission deemed Section 13 to be unconstitutional. And Warman, well, at this point he was regularly facing death threats, just explicit calls for his murder by neo-Nazis, not by the Jewish conservatives, online, and, and he was doxxed, his personal information was put online, he tried to get that suppressed. Finally, he just kind of disappeared, from the media at least. And you don't hear the name Richard Warman in the media much anymore, even as the issues that he engaged with, this fight against neo-Nazis, uh, has become this thing that has overtaken our news feeds. But Richard Warman has agreed to talk to me. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Dan Rosenson, Andre Corbail, Megan Brierley, Georgia Weber, Elizabeth Hill, Catherine Edgett, Michael Joel Hansen, and Eric Deckers. Eric, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I've been a Jesse Brown fan since 2007 and the search engine days. So when you moved from the CBC to TV1 to your other ventures to Canada Land and you said, hey, I need help. I stood up in the United States and I waved my dollar bills and I said, take my money. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. And this episode is brought to you by Hover.com. What I like about Hover.com is that you meet them at a nice point in your life. When you are deciding to launch a new website and you're looking for a name and you're trying to figure out what the best name is, that's like a very hopeful and optimistic part of your process of starting something. And it's not where you want to meet some hustler who's trying to upsell you into a bunch of products that you don't want or need. Hover keeps it clean. They keep it simple. They connect you with a zillion suffixes, whether it's .com, .ninja, .horse, or .pizza. We are at that moment in, in a project right now. Canada Land is working on a whole new project. It's going to require a whole new website, a whole new name. I can't tell you what it is yet. I don't know, know what the name is yet. Um, but we're actually finding that Hover is really useful for figuring out what the name of your new project is because, I don't know, it's kind of like getting a phone number. Like some phone numbers you're assigning, you're like, oh, that feels right. That's a great number. And other times you just know no one's going to remember that thing. It's got no harmony to it. It doesn't resolve. And you're not going to get as much action with that bad phone number. So we're finding that Hover is great for like plugging in different names and words and seeing if the .com is available. If not, what would work? It's actually a nice engine for that creative process. Their customer support is the best. They have personalized email that matches your domain with your email addresses. They give you free who is privacy. I love that. 400 plus domain names. Go check them out at hover.com slash CanadaLand. When you do decide to buy a domain name, Use the offer code CanadaLand, you'll get 10% off. And this episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. Guys, sometimes you get that not-so-fresh feeling. And you're wondering, does anyone notice? They notice. They're just not going to tell you anything about it. It's your invoices. They're not looking fresh. They need to look fresher. Check out FreshBooks for all of your billing needs. It is, you will forgive me, a matter of personal branding. The way your invoice looks, it is a part of your enterprise that hits your client at a very crucial juncture, the juncture where you get paid. You'll get paid quicker if you use FreshBooks. Yeah, you could do it for free with a PDF or Microsoft Word, but that's not so fresh. And it doesn't allow you to do things like see when people look at your invoice and quickly chart how many times they've opened it or how long since they've opened it. Try it out for free, no credit card required for 30 days. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. When you do decide to become a FreshBooks customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you and you'll be doing the show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. I think that before we get into it, just to like establish some common ground, can we just agree like who'd have thought that in 2017 we'd be dealing with fucking Nazis? <laughs> Me, I guess. Yeah. I guess you. Uh, You're the guy who thought so. I, I, I did not think so. I mean, I don't know, like, whatever, neo-Nazis or pseudo-Nazis or crypto-Nazis or hipster Nazis, postmodern Nazis, half-Nazis, am I or aren't I a Nazi Nazi? Like, these Nazis are very irritating. They're a bummer. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of like the pestilence that just will not go away. All right. Well, fuck Nazis. I think we should just begin there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a common ground that we can all agree on, I think. Well, you'd hope so, but it seems that now it's, it's, it's actually necessary to, to just, just in case you were wondering how I feel, uh, fuck Nazis is how I feel. Right. Do you have the t-shirt? No, but there's money okay. to be made. Um, I don't know, but some people are more comfortable with a safety pin, I guess, but that's, that's sort of part of it is that nobody really knows. Do I have to wear a t-shirt? Do I have to punch Nazis? Do I have to what, what should I do? You have been punching Nazis in your own way while most of us thought that Nazis were not going to be like the 21st century. Like, we're supposed to have flying cars, instead, we have a Nazi come out. It's very depressing. Where are the Jetsons when you need them? Yeah, there were no Nazis in the Jetsons. <laughs> so, 
you fight Nazis in your own special way, and you have been for some time. I am aware that you have described your Nazi fighting tactic as maximum disruption. Sure, yeah. I mean, that was the title of a presentation that I once gave to an anti-racism conference. What were you describing? How, do, how does Richard Warman fight Nazis? By way of historical background, I had been monitoring the neo-Nazi movement since sort of the later years of my high school. The Heritage Front was, at the time, the largest neo-Nazi group in Canada and had been growing and, and causing a fair bit of uh, problems in the Toronto area. So, you know, I had the background, I had the knowledge of the movement, the neo-Nazi movement and the white supremacist movements, so that ultimately years later when I went to law school, uh, I had already seen a fantastic Canadian rights lawyer, commission lawyer named Eddie Taylor uh, involved in courtroom scraps with the Heritage Front and showing that the law could be a very effective tool in the box to shut down hate group activity. So after I went to law school, I figured, well, okay, society has spent an awful lot of money educating me. I have some, uh, you know, moral obligation to pay back that and try to make the world a better place. So now that I have the historical and political knowledge of who these people are and what they're up to and the risks that they pose, uh, now I'll put those legal skills that I have to use. And I really began looking at the most effective legal ways to counter uh, hate group activity in Canada. People try to improve the world in many different ways. You're not, as I understand it, uh, a Jewish person. You're not the ancestor of Holocaust survivors. Why did this particular fight appeal to you? No, I mean, it always drove the neo-Nazis nuts because they couldn't figure out who I was and what I was up to because they didn't know who I was when I when I first started this human rights work. So when they finally got around to pictures of me, they were like, okay, well, that's a bit of a, a mind uh, twist for them because he's white and he's male. So uh, the only things that are, are really left for us is he must be gay and he must be Jewish. So my standard response to that has always been, look, I'm, I'm a Canadian citizen who just really doesn't like neo-Nazism, who has the knowledge of, of, you know, this is what historically Nazism caused, which is the deaths of tens of millions of people during World War II. Uh, and there's no way that it should be permitted to, you know, desecrate the graves of the tens of thousands of Canadian men and women who died in fighting Nazism and fascism. Okay, uh, I guess you don't need much of a better reason than that, that Nazis are bad and it's good to fight them. But to describe yourself as a human rights lawyer who takes on these kinds of cases, I think that most people would assume that you represent clients who have somehow been harmed by neo-Nazis. But in fact, your claims, the legal actions you've taken, complaints, whatnot, they're always on your own behalf. The plaintiff is Richard Warman, right? Yeah, and I mean, that was another thing that the neo-Nazis couldn't quite wrap their heads around was the fact that I wasn't representing uh, private clients. And in fact, all of the human rights work that I've done has been done on my own uh, time using my own resources. Can you just describe to people who are unfamiliar, I mean, you know, your name has appeared in print, especially in the National Post so many times. It's almost a matter of obsession for a lot of the uh, columnists and writers of the Post for, for years, but uh, some people don't know who you are or what you got up to and, and your relationship to Section 13 and, and the uh, the hate speech laws. Can you kind of give us a summary uh, of the role that you played? Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act was uh, a good neighbor law, if you will. It said, don't use the internet to spread hate propaganda. In the old days, it used to be centered around telephone hate lines, but uh, in the age of the internet, those you know it went the way of the dodo bird. So, Section 13 made it unlawful to disseminate hate propaganda that was likely to expose the target groups uh, to hatred or contempt on the basis of the standard grounds that you would expect to find in human rights legislation, like age, sex, sexual orientation race, religion, those kinds of, of standard uh, human rights protected um, grounds. Because I could see what was going on and because the legislation was federal, it didn't matter where I was and it didn't matter where the people involved in disseminating hate propaganda through the internet were in Canada. I could file the complaints from wherever I was in my home base city and the respondents could be anywhere from Vancouver to Halifax. So. Uh, really, that's what I started to do. I started to, to look at the sphere of leadership and worst offenders and kind of triage it. So I said, 
okay, if people are calling for ethnic cleansing and genocide, that moves them up the ladder. If people are engaged in real-world activity in terms of organizing not just online but also offline and conducting meetings and recruiting and making a, a, a public real-world impact, then that would move them up the, the ladder as well. So then I just started working my way down the list and ultimately at the the tail end of it, I had filed 16 federal human rights complaints under Section 13 of the Act and uh, I was uh, ultimately successful in all of those. Okay, so I think that the, the, the hate speech laws have been widely criticized for how vague, I mean, you say like inspiring hatred, which is, you know, uh, an emotion against an identifiable group. And, you know, you, you know, by your definition, you know, you include even like, you know, the elderly. So to say, I hate old people, I think most people would say, well, that's a dumb thing to say, but that shouldn't be an illegal thing to say. And with respect to that frequent criticism of, of hate speech legislation, that it criminalizes just an emotion, an expression of an emotion. I mean, I'm, I'm curious where you draw the line, but I'm, I'm, it's a bit more important where the law drew the line. There are a number of checks and balances that are built into the system, both through the law itself and through the jurisprudence up to and including the Supreme Court that has helped us to understand how to interpret the legislation and what will qualify as uh, unlawful hate speech versus robust political discourse, if you will. So in 1990, uh, which was kind of the first big Supreme Court decision dealing with civil law controls on hate propaganda like Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, the Supreme Court said, look, when you're talking about things like hatred and contempt, you're talking about extreme expression. You're talking about expression of extreme ill will, that the targets of the messages have no redeeming qualities. The hate propaganda would evoke feelings of detestation and malevolence. So when you're talking about that kind of really extreme hate propaganda, you, you, you can understand that the sort of horizon for robust political discourse in Canada is virtually endless before you get to the point of start talking about ethnic cleansing and genocide and calls for that. So if someone just says, I hate Group X, uh, whether it's the elderly or you know a particular religious or ethnic community, that's one thing, and there's no real control on that. But if someone says, I hate these people, and they have you know no redeeming qualities. They're responsible for all of the world's ills. They're here to prey on the elderly and our women and our children. And because of that, we need to drive them out of Canada. And not only that, but we need to kill them. You know, that's an entirely different uh, world. And certainly in the 16 cases that I filed, they always dealt with, or almost invariably dealt with, calls for ethnic cleansing and genocide. So I, I never reached that gray zone. And I think that I never had to worry about that because there was always more than adequate self-nominating targets, if you will, within the white supremacist and the neo-Nazi movements. I want to return to a lot of this. I want, to, I want to return to what the courts ultimately did decide in terms of Section 13 and whether or not hate speech laws limit our constitutional freedoms and freedom of expression. But I think that we haven't quite finished describing your role in these complaints because you were not simply a plaintiff in these Section 13 violations. You worked for the Canadian Human Rights Commission. On that point, I should note that I had begun filing federal human rights complaints against individuals and groups involved in the neo-Nazi and white supremacist movements before I started at the Human Rights Commission. Uh, so my work in this area predated my limited two-year tenure at the Human Rights Commission. And I should note as well that in order to prevent any real or perceived conflict of interest, that the second day that I started working at the Human Rights Commission, I went to my director and I said, look, you know, you need to be aware that I'm, I'm a pre-existing complainant in these areas uh, and the appropriate controls were put in place to ensure that any conflict of interest wouldn't in fact arise. Did you file any complaints while you were working for them? I did, yes. But you were able to silo this somehow from, from conflicts of interest? Yes, as I indicated on the second day that I started working there, I indicated to my uh, director that I was in fact uh, a pre-existing complainant and the same controls that were put in place to deal with any possible conflict of interest in relation to that continued with regard to complaints that I filed in my personal capacity. 
I mean, how many people even worked in that office? I mean, was it even possible to inure you from any kind of awareness of how your complaints were being processed? Yeah, and in fact, those were exactly parts of the controls that were put in place. So uh, the Human Rights Commission is a, is a large organization, so I would obviously have nothing to do with the investigation, with the processing. The Canadian Human Rights Commission would send counsel uh, to argue the case before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, and I would be present there and be able to call uh, my own evidence if I so desired, make my own submissions, and um, you know, act as an entirely independent party. Now, here's another aspect of it, because you were not simply monitoring neo-Nazi websites, looking for hate speech and then filing complaints against it. You also participated in the discussions in, I think, more than one of those sites, uh, and you did so uh, under a pseudonym, like you would register for an account on the sites. Do I have that all right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of trying to collect intelligence, if you will, as to what the nature of the hate propaganda activities, what the nature of the movement was, uh, whether in Canada or elsewhere, I had registered pseudonymous uh, accounts on two different uh, neo-Nazi websites. And um, I would note in that regard that I didn't use any of the uh, material that was ever part of any of the threads that I had participated in uh, for the purposes of filing it as evidence within complaints. Oh, okay, because th there are people who say that you were, like, goading people who didn't quite meet the threshold of calling for ethnic cleansing and, like, trying to act like their buddy, but get them to actually say that so there'd be some sort of smoking gun thing. That's not something that you did, or, the, or, or that I if that happened, you didn't complain based on that? No, and in fact, that's entirely false. And, uh, okay. you know, to set the record straight, I've sued a number of high-profile individuals for making that exact claim for libel. And all of those claims uh, were settled out of court uh, just on the eve of trial. And I'm able to say that they were settled out of court to the satisfaction of all parties. Well, let me be very clear then. I, I mean, I have no reason to believe that any of those allegations are true um, and bring them up only because they're part of your online record. But if those allegations aren't true, what was the nature of your communication on those boards when you would interact with people? Why, why did you do so and what did you say? Um, I mean, we're going back... 12, 13 years, so uh, to the best of my recollection, the interactions were mostly innocuous, things that weren't uh, terribly exciting, if you will, and for the most part, the intelligence that was gained from it was fairly low grade and, and wasn't really worth all the time and effort in the end analysis, so if it was something the where the opportunity came up in the future, uh, I can assure you it's, it's something that I would have to think long and hard about before seeking to repeat. Especially just because oh, okay. it, it gave people who wanted to attack the human rights system writ large a, a too easy cudgel to pick up and then try and beat the system with, and me specifically. And they've used it uh, quite a bit when people are trying to uh, discredit the system, this whole thing, that there's this lawyer there, that he's the primary plaintiff for most of these complaints, uh, that he's actually interacting with people, he's not just monitoring them, There, there is he is interacting with them, and there are cash penalties when, when you when you won those those cases and 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 my understanding and again i i, I want to know what happened uh is that you were the recipient of those penalties so, so you you did get paid when you could prove that somebody broke the hate speech laws yeah that was fun of the some of the funniest mischaracterizations of, of what actually happened that i had ever uh, stumbled across in in the years that i was involved in it um i've often said that if i had dedicated myself to a minimum wage job for the same number of hours, I would be a very wealthy man indeed, as opposed to, to where I stand now. The penalties that were in existence were penalties of up to $10,000 if the um, individuals were found to have violated the Section 13 provision of the, the Human Rights Act. That uh, penalty went to the Receiver General of Canada, who I am not. I would like to note for the record. The penalties go to Canada. They go to the Receiver General. They don't go to you? Yeah, they go to the federal government. So that's the first part. The second part is is that there were other remedies that were available of uh, damages if individuals were personally named as the target of the hate propaganda and or if they were retaliated against after the um, complaint had been filed. So there were, uh, I forget the exact amount, but there were some amounts that were awarded to me in damages after people attacked me through the hate propaganda on the presumption that I was Jewish or gay or, or what have you. 
and uh, that I was ultimately awarded damages as a result of that because there is no stupid Nazi defense. Just because you are mistaken in your belief about the target uh, doesn't mean that you're not liable for those actions uh, under the law. Okay, so, uh, you know, you bring up this confluence of factors, the money, your dual roles in the process have been used as a cudgel against the system. And, and ultimately, the system was dismantled, right? Section 13 was ruled to be unconstitutional. G- give me a little uh, history lesson in how that came about. To be specific, it wasn't actually ruled constitu- unconstitutional. There was one complaint before the Human Rights Tribunal where the tribunal member at the end of the hearing felt that there were constitutional issues around the penalty section. So the $10,000, uh, maximum $10,000 penalty that could be applied. So he then refused to apply Section 13 as a whole. That was then overturned at the Federal Court and the Federal Court of Appeal. And ultimately, uh, the individual involved as the respondent, I think, wisely chose not to pursue it to the Supreme Court or not, not to try and seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. So at the tribunal level, one of the 16 cases, uh, one of the tribunal members felt that there was an issue around over-restrictive um, controls on the freedom of expression uh, as a result of the penalty provision. But uh, that was then subsequently overruled by the federal court and the federal court of appeal. So, so does that have uh, any connection to the private members bill that ultimately struck Section 13 down completely? I think you'd have to ask the individual who was responsible for the, quote, private members bill because obviously only they know what was in their mind as, as to what it was, their reasons for, for bringing that forward. Although I think it's fair to say that an awful lot of that had to do with the misleading information that was being uh, pumped out into the the blogosphere and the, the right-wing elements of the media by individuals who quite simply didn't like human rights, period. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you first came to my attention when I was a tech journalist covering the internet. And uh, at the time, had even less sense of myself on a political spectrum than I do now. What got my attention is, is that you talk about the protection of human rights. Freedom of expression is uh, among our human rights. And it's an important one. And as somebody who felt very bullish about protecting freedom of speech on the Internet, there were a couple of things that you seem to be on the other side of. Uh, and, and tell me if I got these right or wrong. One seemed to be holding the publisher of a website responsible for comments made on their website, which felt to me to be kind of something that would inhibit any kind of dynamic web 2.0 user generated thing when you're dealing with massive scales of content that are hosted by an app or a site uh, that could effectively shut down a forum like that. And the other one was asking internet service providers to block access to specific web pages, which would radically redefine the role that an internet service provider has in, in determining uh, that a page is offline my awareness, and I know that there's a lot of talk about you going around and not everything that was said was right, was that that you supported both of those things. And that felt to me to be uh, quite a bit too far into uh, curtailing free speech online. In terms of holding website operators liable for hate propaganda that appears on their forums that's been posted by third parties, I think it's important to note that no court has ever said that that is a Uh, an automatic finding. It happens only when there's reason to believe that the forum operator knows that the material is there and has refused to remove it and or has been willfully blind. So they just close their eyes. It's been, you know, they're aware of the situation. It's been reported to them and they just choose to do nothing about it. It's the same as any other unlawful activity. If your restaurant is being used as a drug dealing den uh, and you permit that and, and knowingly encourage that kind of activity, then there may be legal ramifications down the road for that. And in the same way that if you're a forum operator and you know there's hate propaganda out there and that you're just choosing to do nothing about it, well, that's not what the Canadian law allows. The one case that I uh, dealt with that actually found liability on the part of a uh, web hosting company um, was where the individual responsible had actually been involved in the neo-Nazi movement And in fact, it opened the doors to his hosting company as saying effectively, hey, you've got a neo-Nazi website, come on in. Now, he was also attempting to host legitimate commercial sites, but, you know, where you are not only hosting these kinds of sites, but you're part of the movement, then I don't think it's a stretch to say that you're doing it in order to engage in the same kind of unlawful activity that you were found uh, to have been responsible for on a personal basis as well. 
And in terms of the second part, I'm sorry, can you re repeat the second part of the equation? I, I, I read uh, a blog post, I believe, by Russell McCormand, where he said that there was a specific web page that made libelous statements about you, and you tried to get the ISP to block access to that web page, cut it off at the ISP level. Sure. Um, and, and again, that's a, you know, a rather grotesque mischaracterization of what actually happened. So there was a, a blog in Quebec that was targeting the black community in uh, Quebec. It had started um, receiving attention because of the kinds of hate propaganda and hate speech that was present there. Uh, ultimately, the individual involved in that website turned it over to a U.S. neo-Nazi leader. And because I had written about the website and been quoted in the media about the circumstances dealing with the original owner of the website um, and its incarnation then, this U.S. neo-Nazi leader started attacking me, you know, attacking me in the same way that he did other perceived members or other individuals that he perceived were members of the Jewish religion. So that included posting uh, material about my home address and repeated calls for my murder. So if somebody was was really wanting to comment on it honestly, that material would have been included in their analysis of, of what actually happened. Which which he didn't, yeah, that, that you were doxxed and that there was a legitimate threat against you, you, your life there. That was among the material that you were trying to get removed. I think anybody can understand wanting to, like, if that material was up, I don't really care how you get it down, I kind of want to get it down. Yeah, but there, there's a second part to that, which is at least equally as important, which is that under the federal telecommunications legislation, internet service providers aren't permitted to interfere with content without permission or without an order of the CRTC. So what we in fact did was I had counsel represent me in bringing an application before the CRTC asking them to grant permission, and I, I want to emphasize permission, to any ISP who was willing to voluntarily block access to that material, that web page in the U.S. Uh, from their Canadian customers, uh, if they were willing to do that, that was what we were seeking permission to obtain. Okay. Another guy who I had the pleasure of, of interviewing and who I admired very much is uh, a lawyer named Alan Borovoy, who is also a human rights advocate, who was a Jewish man who really dedicated his life to that, that famous uh, saying, I guess, I hate what you're saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And that principled stand is one, uh, you know, with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, he, he would actually represent people who he found reprehensible. He would represent people who thought that he should be killed. He'd represent uh, their right to free speech. I have a lot of uh, admiration and sympathy for that. It feels incredibly civilized to me to say, our rights and our democracy can withstand idiotic, stupid ideas, and even hateful ideas, and, and that's sort of the price of, of, of freedom, is that we can withstand, we can have a David Icke guy talking about lizard theory, that the race of lizard people who may or may not be code words for Jewish people control the world. That's okay. That idiot can say that. And ultimately, we can withstand that. You must understand that principle. Uh, I, I wonder if, if, if it's one that you share to any degree. Or if you feel that, you know, by any means necessary, that, that, that the hate is the preamble for the killing and, and we just have to stop this any way we can. Yeah, look, you know, as, as a human rights lawyer, I believe very strongly in Section 2B, which is the protection of freedom of expression that is enshrined in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But that understanding is also tempered with the knowledge that there are Section 15 rights under the Charter, which talk about you know, the equality rights of my fellow Canadian citizens. And it's a balancing act. You know, I think that the Supreme Court said it very well when they were rejecting the kind of arguments that were put forward by uh, Mr. Porovoy, those kind of U.S. libertarian arguments that said, you know, let everything go and, and we'll deal with it some way. You know, Justice Dixon, uh, or Chief Justice Dixon said, if values fundamental to the Canadian conception of a free and democratic society suggest an approach that denies hate propaganda the highest degree of constitutional protection, it is this approach which must be employed. And that was in 1990 in the criminal law case of, of James Keekstra, uh, who was a, you know, a, a secondary school teacher in, in Eckville, Alberta, and was uh, indoctrinating his students with Holocaust denial. So it's an approach that I understand, this kind of libertarian-esque U.S.-style approach to 
what they would describe as free speech and what our laws describe as freedom of expression. But it's a different interpretation, and it's one that's always failed here in Canada in the in the jurisprudence, um, and for good reason, I think, because we live in a society that has a desire not just to have the right to say what people think and believe, but also the understanding that, that words can have consequences. Well, and they should, right? If we, yeah, look, we're not going to solve this here. But what I, I, I do think we can get some insight into is because the context that you and I are speaking, I mean, you fought your battles like a good 10 years ago in the early days of the internet. I want to know what works because, you know, a lot of this can get academic and theoretical. I'm scared right now about where things are moving. And I, I think that everybody's looking for a way to shut down the most obvious, like not just an expression of a political philosophy, but we know who we're dealing with. We know that there are people who are looking to uh, have a white ethno state. That's what they want, right? Like it's, it's, it's pretty clear and I don't want to play footsie with them anymore about what they actually mean. So what works? Because we're having this larger conversation about Antifa right now, whether it's okay to punch Nazis. You hit Nazis with the law and you were very successful. But if your mission was to stamp out hate speech on the internet, you failed miserably. And, and there is an argument that vilifying and demonizing this kind of speech and making it verboten, 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 instead of just letting it fail on its own idiocy, actually gives it this like magic aura. Uh, do you think that has lent fuel to the current movement? No, I guess that's the short answer. The longer answer is, is that none of the individuals, certainly the groups no longer exist that I had filed complaints against. None of the individuals that I filed complaints against continue to be active in breaching the law. Uh, in fact, to the best of my knowledge, there are only two of them who are still involved in the neo-Nazi movement, and they have both rectified or, or remedied their conduct so that they are no longer engaged in disseminating unlawful hate propaganda. So no, and I think when you look at it, it basically set the movement back in Canada. It set sort of the ground rules that said, look, you know what? You can have these kinds of beliefs, but if you're going to then disseminate them into the public realm, uh, you're not going to be doing it when you're calling for ethnic cleansing and genocide. So yeah. I don't think it's a circumstance where, you know, that forms some kind of forbidden fruit because calls for ethnic cleansing and genocide will always be outside the norm. So the simple fact of making it unlawful and trying to perfect, protect the target communities from those kinds of attacks, because it's not just has it led to violence yet. It's what are the more intangible effects upon the ability of the target communities to participate in the wider Canadian society. If you're constantly being told that you're terrorists, that you are people who don't have a role in democratic Western societies, that you are barbaric, that you are sort of by nature people that don't belong in our society and need to be driven out, then what does that do to your ability to feel a part of it, to engage constructively in the Canadian society, and also just to have the right that everybody else does, which is to live your life without being the target of this kind of uh, hate propaganda that says we need to drive you out and or we need to kill you. Uh, I mean, those are kind of the basic ground rules of any society that I want to live in. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly agree, and I think, I, 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 look, you, you move the needle to the calls for genocide because that's so obviously, uh, you know, beyond the pale and, and in need of some kind of response. It doesn't even have to be that, right? You know, like you bring up calling people barbaric. There's all kinds of speech that doesn't cross the threshold into that kind of radical extremist and violent speech that, that hurts people. And, and that hurts specific groups of people. And, and uh, it happens in the mainstream press in Canada all the time. I, I feel like maybe like I'm naive. Like I would like to believe that the remedy for that speech is better speech as, as facts and analysis and that sunlight is the best disinfectant. But I can't ignore that if that's true, it takes some time. And in the meantime, bad ideas can get popular and more and more people can get hurt. I, I don't know what the answer is. And Well, maybe I can just jump in just just really briefly there, because there is a okay. long there is a long and sordid history of violence within the, the neo-Nazi and white supremacist movements in Canada. You don't have to scratch very far under the surface to find the kind of hate propaganda inspired violence directed towards the target communities that individuals and groups uh, that are involved in these movements have participated in and, and perpetrated. So, you know, it's important to remember that it's not the other, it's not somewhere else that this these kinds of of words have in inspiring attacks, uh, that it's here in Canada as well. 
And I think if we look to the fact that hate speech in the form of the Turner Diaries, which was sort of an apocalyptic you know, race war that was purported to take place in the future in the United States, was the inspiration for Timothy McVeigh and his bombing of the uh, Murrah Building in Oklahoma uh, City, where 168 men, women, and children were murdered uh, by an individual who was involved in the white supremacist movement. So this idea that it's kind of just you know, offensive speech and consequence-free it really just ignores the reality of it and, and what impact it has had in society. No, I don't, I don't believe that it's impact-free, and I, don't, I, I question anybody who makes it. How can you work in, in, in words and th- think that it's meaningless and has no consequence? They're just words. They, they, of course they have impacts. What I want to ask you, though, is, like, what the fuck do we do about it? I mean, Section 13 is gone, uh, so now people are punching Nazis on the streets. Like, well, I don't know if that's going to work. What do we do with the situation? What do you think should be done? Well, I mean, the repeal of Section 13 was brought about uh, by a purported backbench private member's bill that I think to anyone who had any knowledge of what the circumstances actually were, was it was a government bill uh, that when the Conservative government had been in minority status, they had indicated, Prime Minister Stephen Harper had indicated they had no intention of doing anything about Section 13 under the, the Canadian Human Rights Act. And then when ultimately they became... Uh, majority government backdoored it through this private member's bill and, and repealed it as a matter, of, I think, of government policy. The opposition parties voted virtually unanimously against the repeal of Section 13. That included the federal liberals. So, in effect, I'm hopeful that there may be a reconsideration and that in an age where social media and the internet have become a sewer of attacks on our Muslim neighbors, that there will be a greater and better understanding that that was a mistake, and that in fact, civil law controls on hate propaganda are an effective tool. They're not the tool, you know, they're a tool. Look, civil law controls on hate propaganda are important. Criminal law controls are there, you know, to the point where it's necessary to employ a big hammer, if you will. But that's just part of it. Education and, and community organizing and the community banding together to address hate group activity wherever it rears its ugly head, you know, that's the frontline stuff that's going to get the job done in the long term. You know, if I think back to what Martin Luther King Jr. once said, he said, morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless. You may not change the hearts and minds. You may not win that hearts and minds campaign initially. You may not win it ever. But the important thing is, is that when the conduct of the individuals who are spreading hate propaganda and are involved in neo-Nazi activity in the community is so fundamentally destructive to who we are and who we should be as a Canadian society, then sometimes it's up to the law to use that um, force to say, look, that's not acceptable and you have to stop. You know, the biggest inhibitor, I think, for a lot of people is is not the law, and I agree with you, you know, if you're trying to convince everybody, good luck. The people who hate are always going to hate, and the, the stuff lies dormant. The main reason why racists don't openly come after Jews, why they have learnt to suppress terminology that that is uh, horribly racist against black people, the vast majority of racists who keep their mouths fucking shut do so because they fear ostracization. We've made it socially unacceptable. We don't care what's in your heart and your mind, but you better keep your mouth shut. And, and, and that's, uh, I think, can be more effective than the law. The problem is that, that those social norms can shift so rapidly and that what seemed like it was what we could take for a given, don't be a fucking Nazi, overnight is somehow in, in question. Yeah, and I mean, this idea that people are able to constrain themselves of their own accord sometimes is just unrealistic. If you look at any amount of the hate propaganda that I see on a daily basis via social media that predominantly nowadays is attacking our Muslim neighbors, uh, you come to an understanding that people think that when they're on the internet, they take the chains off and they let their inner demons free to run amok. And that They think somehow it's okay to talk about, you know, we need to drive these people out. Uh, That it's okay to post pictures of sniper rifles pointing at Justin Trudeau and say that he's responsible for all these members of the the Muslim community coming into Canadian society and therefore we need to kill not just them but him as well. This kind of paranoid, antisocial 
ideas that have that seem to have infected certain portions of the online community. You know, you do need legal controls. You do need to attempt to bring people to a greater understanding that what is unlawful in real life is also unlawful on the internet. Like most of these people would never walk down the street and start spouting off, you know, to a crowd saying, look, we need to kill Justin Trudeau. We need to kill most of these Muslims who, who have invaded our country. Well, until they do. And that's sort of why you and I are talking right now is that the, they, just a few weeks ago, they did. I'm not that exact example, but that that online speech did, it, it, it did manifest itself in the streets of an American city. No, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I would say that it's not a circumstance where this has come onto us as some sort of big surprise, right? The neo-Nazi movements have existed since post-World War II. They have gone through ebbs and flows, but to a great extent, I believe, as a result of civil law controls on hate propaganda, they were able to be kept in check. Uh, they were not, for the, the greatest part, out manifesting themselves in um, public protests. And when they were, they soon found that their online activities in promoting hate propaganda, because that was their biggest you know, message amplifier, came with a, a legal cost. And that was the fact that they could be held accountable for their actions under the federal human rights law. And that uh, if they then continued to choose to engaging in that kind of illegal hate propaganda, that there were consequences in the form of contempt of court. Two of the individuals that I was involved with ultimately went through contempt of court proceedings, were found to have breached the law and also the injunctions against them, uh, and were held suitably accountable, and, and they don't do that anymore. So there is a broad amount of room to work within the legal controls as kind of parts of the tools in the toolbox. But again, you know, the, the broader message has to be through things like positive media, things like community organizing, things like individual suasion, whether it's, you know, a friend or a family attempting to say, look, you know what, you seem to be coming off the rails a bit. We, you know, we need to talk about what it is that you're involved in. Yeah. Or taking their picture when they were at a rally and putting it on the internet and saying, you know, this person's name and telling his boss that he's a Nazi. That works too. I, I mean, that's not something that I've been involved with. Um, so, you know, I just, I wouldn't really comment on that. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. Email me, jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We're on Twitter, at Canada Land. Look us up on Facebook and hit like. Do that and our news stories will find you on your news feed. You can also just visit our website, canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. What else can I tell you about? Canada Land Commons is back this week. They will be interviewing every leadership candidate for the NDP. And at this point in time, as I record this, we have a Jagmeet Singh interview lined up for Commons. You're going to want to hear that. It is not going to sound like any other interview with Jagmeet Singh. And if you want to know more about him, check out Canada Land Commons. You should Google the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. Hit that up in Google. See all these amazing podcasts that are coming to Toronto this October. We are one of them. We are closing the festival, and I will be interviewing Daniel Dale on stage. This guy's going to talk to me about covering Rob Ford and covering Donald Trump. We also have some surprises we will be announcing at that live show. So check that out, Hot Docs Podcast Festival. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton. Syndication of Canada Land to Community and Campus Radio is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.